you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hey, David. And hello, listeners, and welcome to a very special episode 19 of the Common Descent Podcast. Indeed. How about, how does 19 work for you? How does 19? It, this, so far, works pretty well. <laughs> works pretty well. <laughs> Today, we are, so, hey, you remember how sometimes we have episodes where we take special requests from our listeners? Oh, I do remember that. And then also, you remember how some a couple times we've had episodes where we've had special guests on the that podcast? That happened as, also, as well. This is the first episode where we are doing both. <gasps> a collective right? gasp from the audience. A colle- I heard it. I heard yeah. it around the world in the future. Today's episode topic comes requested to us by Matthew on Facebook, Woo. who asked if we could do an episode about women in paleontology. Yeah. Which is an awesome suggestion. It really is. But that is not the typical sort of sciencey, mm-hmm. you know, kind of topic that we normally do. And so fortunately, we knew someone who could help us out. Yeah. In fact, you know how we always do topics and we're like, "Oh, you could do could be a whole podcast about this sort of topic." Yeah. Well, there is, and we got that <laughs> podcast host <laughs> to join us today. For this episode, we are going to be joined by Michelle Barboza Ramirez of the Femmes of STEM podcast, mm-hmm. who is all about the role of women in various fields of science, and Michelle yeah. herself is a paleontologist. Pretty perfect matchup. Yes. So more on that, a whole wonderful discussion coming up with Michelle after the news. But before the news, a oh. couple things to get out of the way. Announcements. Announcements. A few announcements. We'll make them real quick. It is October here on Earth, Mm -hmm. and that is a great time to remind everybody that October's run of Common Descent Podcast episodes are brought to you pretty much entirely by Mm -hmm. the donations from our subscribers on Patreon. It's pretty sweet. Big thank you to all of our patrons. We are making... Uh, enough money to cover the costs of producing and hosting the podcast every mm-hmm. month, and even a little bit more, which means that we can start saving up to hopefully use this money to do more cool things in the future yeah. to improve the podcast. If you would like to join us on Patreon, we would be super happy to have you. You can donate whatever you want. Donors mm-hmm. on Patreon get some special access to behind-the-scenes posts, bonus audio recordings, mm-hmm. and if you subscribe at a certain level, you get to have your name shouted out on the podcast, which brings me to some new patrons. Yeah. Michael subscribed in between our recordings of episode 18A and 18B, and we <laughs> shouted out to him at the beginning of 18B, which was kind of in the middle of an episode. So, in fairness to Michael, here's his beginning of the episode shout-out. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> and more recently, Demi has become a patron on Patreon. Yeah. Thank you both to Michael and Demi for joining us. Thanks, guys. 
And of course, thank you to everybody else who listens, mm-hmm. who is on Patreon, who is not on Patreon, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes reviews, all that stuff. We love hearing from you and getting your feedback. You guys are pretty awesome. Speaking of that, at the end of the last episode, we had a conversation about ape sex. Yeah. Yes, we did. Which <laughs> which uh, caught the attention of a, a few of our listeners who for have, some have since... Yeah, for some reason. I don't know what. They really like apes. <laughs> we have actually... It, it's funny. That was a... It was a bit of a tangential, unplanned conversation. Yeah. So naturally, we left stuff out. Mm-hmm. And we've had a few of our listeners pitch in uh, additional info. Yeah, fill in those gaps. Yeah, we've we've put some of the things that our listeners have, have thrown our direction, basically filling in some of the, the, the extra information that we didn't get to talk about on the podcast. Those are on Facebook and Twitter. We've shared them, so you can check those out. Big thanks to Darcy on Twitter, who is a mm-hmm. longtime follower, and a New listener, it sounds like, whose name is spelled Jens, but might not be pronounced Jens. Mm-hmm. So apologies to, I'm going to call him Mr. K. Yeah. What's up, Mr. K? Thanks for sending us some extra information. Yeah. We uh, shared they both that. Were really helpful. Uh, uh, Darcy actually answered one of the questions we had while having the discussion. Yes. When it came to the cultural prevalence of kissing, yes. which is really nice. So thank you to all of those people. One final note. This episode is going to be coming out the second week of October, actually just a few days before National Fossil Day. Woo! So it is our duty as paleontologists and educators to tell everybody that if there's a museum or a university or something nearby you and mm-hmm. you're interested, check it out. They might be doing something special for yeah. National Fossil Day. We're even doing something f- cool for it at the aquarium. For the, the Saturday after it, we'll be having one of the, the local fossil club here bringing a bunch, a bunch of different material that coincides with a lot of our animals and talk about them. Very, very cool. Check that out. If you find something cool, let us know. Let us know what you did for National Fossil Day. We will be excited to hear about it. Absolutely. Okay, that's all the announcements. Eventually, we're going to have to just do a whole extra episode for announcements. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's getting getting crazy, which is awesome. I have to have the the bi-weekly newsletter. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, let's move on to the news in honor of our episode topic today. Mm-hmm. All of the news stories we're going to be presenting uh, in paleontology slash evolution slash fossil news are studies led or primarily authored by female paleontologists. Yeah. Because, as we will discuss in our conversation after the news, representation is important. Yes. There are wonderful women doing wonderful work in paleontology. And funnily enough, I kind of, that's a limiter, right? We set a limit on yeah. what, a, a criteria, an extra criterion for choosing our news this this episode. And in the back of my head, I was wondering how that was going to affect mm-hmm. availability. Like, oh, are we going to have to dig a little deeper than usual? Or are we going to have to like go back a little farther in time? Yeah. Maybe talk about some topics that we don't usually talk about. Turns out, no. Nope. Not not even a little bit. Didn't really affect at all. <laughs> Did not affect, like, these are these are the, the things we probably would have wanted to talk about anyway. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, no. Not, not even a limiting factor, which is really, really awesome. Yes. Go ahead, start us off, Will. And so, for my first news article, I want to talk about kitties. 
kitties. Specifically, kittens. Sully the... from Monsters, Inc. Yes. Yeah, kitty. <laughs> Specifically, I'm talking about the kittens and of a certain saber-toothed cat. Uh, so a fairly recent study by Catherine Long, who's actually a master's student, yeah. and it's published on uh, Plus One. She, along with her advisor and uh, a couple other people on the the article or on the paper, at, was asking the question, you know, what were saber-toothed cat kittens actually like, and how did they grow? Yeah. Now this is over in California where they have La Brea tar pits, which is chock-a-block full of a particular saber-toothed cat known as Smilodon fatalis, which is yeah. the famous one. This is what you're thinking of typically when you think of uh, saber-toothed cats. <laughs> yeah, right now, it's the image in your head. It's the image. Uh, so Smilodons are very, very well-known from there, and the adults are incredibly well-studied, but not so much the kittens. Mm -hmm. And they do have juveniles there. They have a, a variety of ages and they decided they wanted to know how they grew because Smilodon is famous not just for having those big teeth, but also being a very robust cat. Yeah, they're beefy. They're 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 like bulldogish. They've got a wide, broad chest. They've got stout, you know, shorter limbs. So they're mm -hmm. not long and slinky like your house cat. They're very tough and and thick uh, for a cat at least. Yeah. So they were wondering. Is that something that develops with age, or did that feature show up in the young as well? Hmm. One of the other things I liked about this study is that they decided to find this out by using a study that had already been done recently on modern cats, looking at the growth history of different cats. Oh. And so basically, using the parameters already and the info already set up by that study, they just studied the bones. They just looked at and analyzed the bones of different age juveniles of Smilodon and plugged it in. Cool. And what they found is they were born beefy. That's cool. So by measuring the lengths and circumferences of the juvenile limb bones, they found that they started out pretty beefy, but besides that followed the exact same growth patterns as modern cats. Interesting. So they weren't, they didn't, they didn't grow any differently. They just, yeah. They were still getting proportionally longer and more slender and gracile as they grew, but were still relatively beefy from birth, so they were still beefy when they were older. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder what that means for playtime. Oh, I just these little boulders running around with teeth. <laughs> just wrestling each other with their giant <laughs> saber-tooth arms. It's cool. They said the next step in their study would do look at interior growth to get... Okay. Uh, look With, at the inside the bone, either. you mean? Yeah, inside the bone, exactly. Uh, to do a CT scans or x-rays to look inside the bone and look at the marrow versus solid bone, which would be the weight-bearing factor. Because right, right now, their studies are treating the bone as a solid staff shaft, mm -hmm. which throws off weight estimates or weight studies. Right, because right, right. That would, because it's not. Exactly. That would take weight differently than the marrow-filled, you know, slightly hollow bones of an actual mammal. Yeah. And that would give them better looks at what the body was actually, you know, how it was actually functioning with the the bones that they have. Very cool. It's always fun to learn about how extinct animals grew. Yeah. It, t it can tell you a lot about their potential behavior or, you know, functionings throughout life. Yeah. 
A quick note that I thought was really interesting. Darren Nash on Twitter pointed mm-hmm. out that he does not like calling Sabretooth Cat young kittens <laughs> and that they should be cubs. Interesting. Which, and at first I was like, well, you could... No, that's a good point. Yeah. Because we call cub... All the other big cats are cubs. Yeah, that's true. That's There's true. Tiger cubs, lion cubs... I did wonder when I first read it and saw kittens, I was like, I think that's the first time I've ever heard Yeah. it called a kitten. So yeah, yeah cubs yeah. make sense. Now, in their defense, and I think that was in the actual study, it wasn't just a, a news thing, I think it was in the actual study, kittens sounds cooler, Yeah. it sounds more alluring, and it gets more attention, <laughs> so I understand the allure. Naming of juveniles, and I've had this conversation with guests before, and other people at the aquarium... Naming of juveniles is always funny to me because, like, yes, there is a little bit of the if I say kitten or pup, you immediately know what animal I'm talking about. But once again, it's just a w- w- different way for me to say baby. Yeah, like, it's the same. <laughs> and why do bears and lions both get to have the same name for their babies? <laughs> like, oh, wolves do too. Well, like, like all across carnivora. It's one of those things where, like, there's definitely like dolphin babies are called calves. And yes, that has led other people are, argue whether they should be... Yeah. They're artiodactyls. <laughs> which has made other people wonder, should they really be pods or herds? The oh, naming boy. of groups and babies is something that is fun, <laughs> and that's really where it should end. <laughs> For me personally, it's like, it's fun, but it gets complicated quick when you start trying to nitpick it. That being said, the next news article is also about studying growth over the life of an animal, particularly this time in... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say Triceratops chicks. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a study. This is an interesting one because it's actually not a finished study. This is a, a, a bit of beginning research that I actually wrote about this week. And was there was a press release that went out about it. So there's not a study associated with this yet, which is actually kind of cool to, to see the very beginnings, the planning of a, of a new approach. The story here starts with two pieces of young Triceratops skulls going under a CT scanner for to study their brains. This is work being done by Ashley Moorhart from the Washington University in St. Louis, along with her colleagues. What they're doing is by plugging the skulls, and these aren't full Triceratops skulls, these are the brain cases. Right, the skull has all sorts of different parts, and human skulls are not a great example of this, because our skull is almost entirely brain case. But if you look at a Triceratops or most animals, they've got the jaws and the nose, and the, the Triceratops has that frill. But just behind the eyes is a bunch of bones that encapsulate the brain. And when you have a nice, complete brain case, what you can do, and what they're doing, is CT scanning it, medical right, CT scanner, to create a digital image of it so that they can virtually fill in the space within the brain case and create a model of the shape of the brain tissue. This is called an endocast, since you're treating the brain case like a mold and you're casting the brain shape within it. You don't get an exact shape of the brain, since the brain, especially in, in animals like dinosaurs, doesn't completely fill the space. But it can give you insight into where the different brain regions are, the size and shape of the different brain regions, 
And even more impressively, you can look at all the little channels and holes and divots where the nerves and blood vessels run. And by comparing those to the structures we see in modern birds and crocodilians, you can then get a really good approximate of what the dinosaur's brain looked like. And this has been done for a lot of different dinosaurs, right? T-Rex has been done for, and that's how we know that it had a great big olfactory region and a good sense of smell. You can learn about, you know, the balance and coordination structures by looking at things like the inner ear within the brain case, all sorts of different things you can learn by looking at the shape of the bone, the skull bones around the brain. What these researchers are aiming to do particularly is look at brain ontogeny. So how did the brain case and perhaps the brain structure of Triceratops change over the course of its life? Because as Dr. Morehart explained to me when I spoke to her, we know a lot about Triceratops ontogeny. We have a lot of juveniles and a lot of adults, all different ages. So we know a ton about how their face shape changes and their frill changes, but we don't know hardly anything about how their brain case changed as they grew. And that can tell us all sorts of stuff about behavioral shifts or how the facial shape is related to the shape of the brain, right? As the, the brain shape changes, the skull shape changes. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff they, they're hoping to learn by studying how this changes onto genetically. That's a really cool study. I, I love looking at those things because uh, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, with our brain, it just kind of looks like a big fruit <laughs> a big melon head but a big melon like that's what you know we call it our melon uh this but he's got his melon stuck yeah it's huge but other animals <laughs> have one stuck melon <laughs> other animals have very distinctly shaped brains for the job it's doing where the part yeah. for smell is big or the part for sight is big and memory you know sections will be bigger or smaller and you can act like it's it's very much more telling, you know. They're shaped much more like a it can be yeah. like a duck bill for a lot of animals than it is for us. Yeah, which is re which means with dinosaurs, if you can get a shape of it, you might be able to learn things. Like that's why we think T. Rex had a really good sense of smell. Yes, which is cool indeed. And in fact, there was a study that uh, has recently been there. Was one other study that that Dr. Morehart showed me about dinosaur brain ontogeny, which was in an Iguanodontian, I think, mm -hmm. where they found that the brain, most of the f regions of the brain were pretty well formed in mm -hmm. the juvenile, which is a potentially an indication that they were very independent and self-sufficient, that they already were well-coordinated and their sensory systems were all basically up and running. Getting up and running like deer do and other animals. Yeah. But then that there was a change in the brain shape around sexual maturity. Oh, that's cool. Which could be relating to, you know, different patterns of behavior that are showing up either, you know, sexual behavior, like mating and, and finding a mate and such, or, you know, changing in lifestyle. Like you, you're older and now you're feeding on different things. Dino puberty. Living a different place. Yeah, exactly. Dino puberty happens in the brain. So who knows what we're going to learn about Triceratops. It's going to be very exciting. It's pretty awesome. So my final study has a little bit to do with dinosaur behavior directly, and specifically diet. So 
study by Karen Chin et al. in Scientific Reports is on some fecal matter <laughs> from large herbivorous dinosaurs. Fecal matter that we would call coprolites when it's fossilized like this. Yes, fossil poo. It is pretty sweet. So dinosaur poo is pretty rare to find in general, especially herbivore droppings because they tend to break down pretty quickly. You know, Hmm. Uh, the article gave, or the news article gave the example of thinking of like cow pies and cow patties. Is, yeah. Is a lot of plant material, it's going to break down pretty quickly because it's already been digested, becomes fertilizer, so on and so forth. We do get carnivorous coprolites a bit more often because there's usually more mineral in it from the bones of the animals they're eating. Yeah. Which makes, makes it a little more substantial. But they found some from herbivores and they found something really cool by looking inside them. So we f- get indications of di- dinosaur diets a couple, you know, a few ways. Most obvious is the teeth, sharp teeth, you know, meat, yeah. flatter teeth or grinding teeth for plants, and the multitude of varieties within all of those teeth. Yeah. The other way is either finding stuff in the gut of the fossil or mm-hmm. in the poop, which is kind of the the holy grail version because this is actually show what went through their digestive system. Yeah. And in this one, they found rotten wood mm-hmm. and exoskeleton pieces from most likely crustaceans. Neither of those things is what you would expect to find going through the gut of no. an herbivore. So these are weird things. Now, they, uh, Karen Chin had found rotten log material in a, it before. So this huh. is not the first time that's been found. The crustacean pieces are the thing that's really new and interesting here. And what they think this might suggest is that the dinosaur, which she thinks is most likely hadrosaurs, mm-hmm. were going after rotten logs and going for the crabs or crayfish or other cousins of those animals that are hiding in, in among the now rotten wood, either eating the wood or eating the other things in there. Yeah. And actively going after that, Eating these things would boost their calcium intake and protein mm-hmm. intake for the meat and shell of the crustaceans. The fungus in the wood could also increase protein uh, in their diet. Interesting. And they attributed this to something we see in modern birds that are mainly herbivores today will also take insects in their diet, specifically when they're getting ready to lay eggs. Oh, for extra material. Extra material. A- yeah. Egg building material and protein. Exactly. And you require more insects to make these eggs. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. And they think maybe that's what the dinosaurs were doing. Um, you know, that this wasn't a regular, that they didn't just hunt rotten logs, but that right, they right, right. would do it to supplement their diet in certain times. It's also suggested that this could be a result from uh, environmental upheaval. You know, if the climate was changing right. or your food was particularly hard to find, then this might be a a suitable stand-in or something that they could go for when they particularly need it. That's super interesting because it's one of those discoveries that is fun to discover and it's a surprise that we found it, but it's not a surprise that it exists. Yes. Because categories like herbivore and carnivore, like so many categories in nature, Mm -hmm. are not... Tons of, of examples of herbivores turning to, uh, to to animals for additional protein yeah. 
we see that with a number of herbivores today. There's the famous things of deers murdering ground nesting birds to yep. like eat the wings off of chicks or you know go yep. after the eggs. And I know it's been seen in cattle. Our yes. friend Ethan, when he worked at the Knoxville Zoo, said that the red pandas who are typically bamboo eaters would gladly grab a lizard if it ran by. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Yeah. You take your nutrients where you can get them. Absolutely. And it's uh, something I, I always love to tell people on the, the tours of the aquarium whenever we're talking about the habits of an animal is we write books about them. The animals do not read those books we write. So yes. they don't have to follow <laughs> those rules. <laughs> it's just us saying what we're pretty sure they do. Uh, yeah. So they and may it, do it's weird stuff. Because animals are special. Hadrosaurs are super specialized in most cases for yes. eating plants in ways that other animals could not have accomplished. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that their diet was 100% plants. Yeah. And it's not unusual, like you said, for animals to supplement their diet with other things. It's really cool here that they're basically just chowing down on rotten logs to scoop up yeah. all the snacks inside. Well, I wonder if it's a lot like uh, like modern-day elephants will go to salt, you know, salt-infused caves and chisel off chunks with their tusk to get you know, to supplement yeah. their salt diet and like tapers with the clay in the bottom of rivers. Like, I wonder if this is like that where they're like, oh, I running low on calcium. Where's a log? And yeah, and chomp down on a log. Chomping down on it just from time to time, like vitamins. It's interesting because Karen Chin was actually on a recent episode of Science Friday talking about this, and we we couldn't get her on the podcast. She was she was she was she was very busy. We she couldn't come <laughs> to talk to us about her news. <laughs> Uh, and she made the point that we know that that eating rotten logs full of little bugs was not their main diet because you can't sustain on that. Yeah. Rotten, rotting logs are a lot harder to find than living plants. Yep. So this would have had to have been a, a supplemental portion of their diet. Mm, an active choice for one reason or another. You can learn a whole lot from fossil poo. Yeah. And that Karen Chin really knows her stuff. Yeah. To, to quote one of my, my favorite professors in college in biology, B.K. Hull, she would say, biology is all about sex and poop. And considering that both of these <laughs> things have come up in the first 30 minutes of this episode, I'd say she's pretty darn right. <laughs> there you go. Speaking of digestive systems, the last article we're going to talk about comes to us from a study also in PLOS One by Melanie Hopkins and colleagues. Melanie Hopkins is at the Museum of Natural History in New York City, actually. Oh, cool. They looked at trilobites. Boy, there's not enough of that on this podcast. Trilobites (laughs) from a Burgess Shale-type locality in China that preserve some of the oldest known stomachs. Cool. Kind of. Mm-hmm. So let's explain. There's actually a bunch of... Tri- so trilobites are... You know, remember in a cephalopods episode where we talked about how there's a bajillion of them because they're hard-shelled and mm-hmm. they're super abundant in the fossil record? Trilobites are like that, but more. Mm-hmm. There are apparently... I learned this while reading about this article. Uh, this paper, I should say. There are almost 20,000 known species of trilobites. <laughs> of those, a handful have been discovered, preserved well enough for us to get a glimpse at their digestive system. And typically we see one of two shapes. 
either the tube of the digestive tract has little glands on the sides, Mm -hmm. presumably feeding digestive juices into the tract, or an expanded portion at the front, which is called a crop, and is kind of analogous to our stomach, that the food goes into it and then through the rest of the tube. These trilobites, which are about 514 million years old from Yunnan, China, the Guanshan biota, they found about 50 trilobites of two different species that have preserved digestive tissue, the soft tissue with inside, and they found examples of both of those structures, mm-hmm. which includes not only the oldest example of that stomach setup, that crop leading into the tube, but a definitive example of both the side digestive glands and the crop in the same trilobite. Which is pretty awesome. Which is really cool because it suggests that it wasn't just a clean split down the middle that some had one and some had the other. There were at least some early trilobites that had both. Mm-hmm. It also, you know, because some people have suge- had also suggested that maybe the crop setup, that stomach leading into the tube system, didn't evolve until later. And that's why we don't see it until a little bit later. Yeah. This contradicts that. This says that that structure was an early digestive system structure in trilobites. Which is a, a perfect example of one of those times where discovering something leads to far more, a far larger number of questions. Yes. Yes, it does. This is a really cool discovery. Basically, I, I really like this one. Number one, it tells us more, tells us that trilobite early evolution was a bit more complex mm-hmm. than we had inferred. It tells us that the digestive system diversity in trilobites was also more diverse, more yeah. var- more various, and it's pres- preservation of trilobite stomachs, which is just super super cool. Yeah, it's well, and I love much like we made the point of in the Cambrian explosion episode uh, when we got to the subject of eyes is when you started saying this by saying one of the first stomachs. Yes. This is the invention of the stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. These were some of the first ever organisms to have a stomach. Which is crazy. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, there you have it. And that's the way the news goes. (laughs) With the news out of the way, we are ready to move on to our main topic. Yeah. Of the episode. The rest of this episode will be our conversation with Michelle from the Femza STEM podcast talking about women in paleontology. We are going to talk about the partic- some of the particular challenges and mm-hmm. situations that women experience in this and other fields of science. Both past and present. Past and present. We're going to talk about some historical, uh, famous historical figures in the field, and we're going to talk a bit about what the situation is, and how all of us, even those of us who do not identify as women, Mm -hmm. fit into this broad topic. Yeah. So without further ado, take it away, us, in our conversation with Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hey, uh. Hey. Thank you for being here on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me on, guys. I'm super stoked. Yeah. Yes, we are super stoked to have you with us. So before we get into our topic of discussion, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Hey, listeners. My name is Michelle Barbosa Ramirez, and I am a graduate student 
at the University of Florida in the Florida Museum of Natural History. I'm currently working towards my master's in science in vertebrate paleontology, but I'm also in a joint program where I'm working in the women's studies department at the University of Florida. And the reason I'm doing that is because I guess about a year ago, I had this idea to start a history podcast um, about the history of women in STEM fields, including women in paleontology. And that's kind of what got me on to this show today. Yes, cool. I, I was familiar with Michelle, uh, partly by reputation and also partly because I've listened to Femza STEM. And My reputation precedes me, does it? Yes, and I promise it's all good things. <laughs> so today's topic is women in paleontology. Mm -hmm. And as we're getting into it, right, right, the whole reason that we, would, we can do an episode about women in paleontology is because there are experiences that women face in the field that are unique to them. So, Michelle, can you start us off by just talking a little bit about what it means to be a woman in paleontology. Sure. And I would say experiences not just in the field as in like out in the dirt and the rocks, but in the field as in which I think now that I'm speaking in circles, I realize you meant the field of science and like paleontology. Yes. Wow. Okay. No, I get what you're it's saying. It's a good distinction to make. It's not just <laughs> the field, but the, the research, the publication, the classroom, so on and so yep, forth. The everything, yeah. the field and the history, and the, that's why I'm here. So, well, I guess let me start by saying that every woman in STEM and any minority in any field really has, has these little stories that they could tell you. Something like being told by a mentor to make sure to wear a wedding ring to a job interview, or being told specifically to not wear a wedding ring to a job <laughs> interview, or being asked to take notes at a meeting, and then being asked to take notes at a separate meeting, and then being asked to take notes at another one, or being asked to plan the work socials, or take on these extra little duties that maybe by themselves don't seem like such a big deal, but when you kind of put them together, they start to drag. And really, that's that's what the issue is with all of these little stories. Each person, when they're encountering these issues, may not be sure what to make of this occurrence. You know, is it worth mentioning? Is it is it random? Maybe it's nothing. But maybe when you start listening to all these stories from all these people put together, it starts to sound like the symptom of a much bigger issue. And in this case, mm -hmm. the issue is... Uh, sexism and discrimination, which is still well and alive in the workplace. Now, a lot of people would be kind of surprised by that, I guess, assertion that I'm making that sexism and discrimination is still alive in the workplace because, you know, it's clearly not okay anymore to say, oh, you are a woman, you cannot be a paleontologist, right? There's right. this overt sexism, no longer okay. We've, we've made that much progress. But that means yeah. now that the sexism that women are facing is a much more subtle, even insidious kind of sexism, because no longer can we point to this easy target where it's like, he yeah, said, I'm a lady and I can't do it. Now it's a, a thing that you almost have to like gather your facts and your evidence and document all these little occurrences so that you can have a solid case. And that is really tiring. And that is yeah. really hard. And that puts the burden of, of proof once again, on, on the women or the minorities or whoever is being, um, wh whoever is having to face these kinds of issues. Um, it's almost like dealing with a conspiracy theory of you're having to try to convince 
yeah. everyone else that this thing's actually happening. Yes, yes, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good comparison. Yeah. yeah. Um, but luckily You're we have older. had some people who are actually putting all these experiences together, not just you know on blog posts, but actually publishing research because of course we are scientists and so we want to see the data and the facts and not until we see yes. that will we be swayed so fine we've got that for you too um <laughs> i brought a couple of studies that i thought would be useful to mention here and these studies are actually particularly aimed because there's a ton of studies about women in stem and sexism and this and that but these are specifically for women in earth sciences so getting a little bit closer into what we're talking about. There was one study that was published just this year in Nature that analyzed gender bias in peer review. So that's like our bread and butter as researchers, right? Publishing papers, reviewing papers, being part of the scientific community in terms of that publication. And so right. the, the authors of this study analyzed both the genders and the ages of authors and reviewers from 2012 to 2015 for the journals of AGU, the American Geophysical Union. And what they found was that women were used less as reviewers, not just overall, but even when they compared it to the proportion of men to women as members of the society and as published authors of the journal. So they did kind of even things out and, and tried to even out those ratios and it still was not fitting what you would expect huh. to see or what you should see, I guess. Maybe you right. did expect this. And so <laughs> what you would like to see, right? What we would like to see, what we should be seeing. And so yeah. when the authors kind of went into why might there be this bias, what's going on here, what they found or what they suggested was that authors and editors are suggesting women as reviewers less often than they're suggesting men and mm -hmm. authors and editors include both men and women. Okay, so we're we're not just saying, hey, men are the only people that can be sexist. And it, this is a thing that affects everyone and that everyone might be contributing to. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later um, in my next study. Unconscious bias is a really big keyword that we're going to be coming back to. A lot of the sexism that we're seeing today, maybe it's not a completely deliberate person thinking, like once again, you are a woman, you can't do this, but they've been conditioned since they were young to see all these gender roles, to feel all these stereotypes that even if they think they're not feeling might come into play. Um, and then right. the second thing is, you know, why are authors and editors suggesting women as reviewers less? Maybe just the top three people they thought of were men, which might not be a bad thing. Sure, maybe those guys are all qualified, but there's probably a just as qualified woman or person of color who is also a researcher who could mm -hmm. be recommended. And so, you know, that that might be playing into this skewed proportion. And then the second thing was, you know, we started off this this episode when we giving examples of taking notes at a meeting or organizing social work events. There are a lot of little tasks that women end up being placed with that once again, one at a time might not be such a big deal. But when you actually add up the time that it takes you to, to do all these extra tasks, that puts a pretty heavy burden on a person. Add on to that that women tend to be the primary caretakers of children and families, that women tend to be the people that are sweeping the floor and doing the dishes. If we're going by a very strict stereotypes, w women do yeah. end up being put with a lot more work, not just at work, but in the home. And so a lot of the women reviewers that were suggested also tended to turn down more of the reviewing work because they simply didn't have the time. And so I thought that was a pretty interesting study to bring in because once again, 
it's not just on women to change these things. It's about all of us to kind of think about why is this happening and what can we do to help? Interesting. Yeah. So in that sense, it's it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's people are perceiving women as the ones that do these tasks, that do certain tasks and don't do other tasks. Mm -hmm. And because that's what's being pushed and that's what's being pushed upon people, it ends up being true. And then people start seeing that mm -hmm. and going, oh, well, that's what it's always been like is sure. women are doing this more instead of that. And we talked about a conspiracy series, right? There's a mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that say the system right and, and other people roll yeah. their eyes and like what is the system but if we're talking about the system the system right now is that women are primary caretakers women are the ones that are working in the home that's already working against them for trying to get this extra work at work or if they do get this extra work at work and then start not being the primary caretakers then they're looked down upon for not being good mothers and so yes this is a system this is something that's already been set up where Maybe you can't win either way unless our cultural perceptions change or so something's got to give, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I, I liked you mentioning the unconscious bias because that's a thing I, I think a lot of people don't think about or give credit to when it as, as often as it can be the or as often as it plays a role in things because it's really good point to make that a lot of times it's it's not saying that anyone is you know, nefariously trying to keep mm -hmm. down those women, those pesky girls, you know, it's, that's not <laughs> what's typically going on. But like, if you buy into and you don't question that there's a pink girl aisle and a, you know, boy aisle full of action figures, Nerf guns and Legos, and you never at one point go, so why can't yeah. one play with the other? Like, it's those mm -hmm. little things of like, there's no reason for there to be, you know, different aisles. They're all just toys they're all there for the same general purpose, but we, from a very early time, start saying, well, no, this is the, the things this group does and the things this group does, and you just get programmed thinking that stuff, just like you would yeah. if you always see, you know, something fall. If it suddenly hovered in air, you'd be very surprised because you've, yeah. yes. you've come conditioned to expect gravity to work. Yeah. If society's been going one way, you've become conditioned to consider that the norm. Yeah, and that actually is a pretty great segue into the second study I brought, which is titled mm -hmm. Gender Differences and Recommendation Letters for Postdoctoral Fellowships in Geoscience. And so this study came out just last year in 2016. It came out in Nature Geoscience and uh, unconscious bias striking again. <laughs> so these these researchers studied recommendation letters that were submitted for applicants that were trying to get a job at or trying to get a, a fellowship at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory um, between 20, mm -hmm. uh, 20, 2007 and 2012. And so these letters came from both male and female recommenders, and they were for both male and female applicants, and they were for applicants that were from over 50 different countries. Okay, so we've got a pretty good sample size and talent pool. So what the researchers found was that there was a pretty clear-cut difference in the vocabulary that people use in the recommendation letters for male versus female applicants. They were both hmm. positive, right? Because these are people who wanted their students or whoever they were recommending to get into the program. But unconscious bias, they were using different mm -hmm. words to describe the people. And so for, for the male applicants, there were a lot more words like innovative, excellent scientist, um, more kind of proactive words, 
versus for the female applicants, it was like works well with others or um, follows directions in lab or things that still are positive, but it didn't have this sort of dynamic feeling about it, which maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal. But then again, when you're looking at all these really talented applicants who have almost the same kind of stats and there's this one kind of feeling that's going to push you to one versus the other, it could really, it could really make a difference. And so when I was reading this study was actually when I was doing research for the first full length episode of my podcast, which was about Nettie Stevens, who was a 19th century, 19th century mathematician. Mm-hmm. And I, I found the historic letters, like the actual letters that her mentors wrote for her trying to help her get a position at a university. And they wanted her to get the position. So they were trying to be positive. And one of the things that they said was, uh, you know, she's a pretty good for a girl, pretty smart for a girl at math. <laughs> and uh, in, you know, the 1880s, that was a compliment of the highest praise. Now, yeah. in retrospect, clearly laughable. But yeah. it's kind of these small things that are still playing into it that are still making a difference. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, it A quick aside, because my brain relates everything back to film and movies. Uh, <laughs> it made me think, I when I especially in college, I used to make a habit just through the curiosity to see how it went in the conversation that when I would be talking about movie characters, because I'm terrible with names, so I don't ever remember <laughs> characters. And then, you know, Ocean's Eleven, I know each character. <laughs> I don't remember any of their names. I know number one of them one, is named two. Ocean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I would make a habit of describing the characters by like what they did in the movie uh, mm-hmm. and not by their sex or demographic you know not mm-hmm. by the because yeah. typically people are like oh the girl character or the non-white whatever version of non-white they yeah. are is how they denote those characters and so i'd be like well you know the guy who was good with explosives and it would be hilarious to me how long it took them to realize who i was talking about until i said the black guy yep or mm-hmm. the whatever and it's really interesting and in the once again the you just you mentioned the vocabulary made me think about how often that is the case to where you know that's what that's what people see first when they see a a woman in science is a a, a woman and, that and then they're like oh and she's a scientist opinion. yeah yeah and that's a that's a, a an interesting thing that comes up a lot in, in conversations like this that and, and one of the differences between the demographics is that we typically we have a habit of referring to men as scientists yes and women as Woman scientist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's that, and and it's one of those things where it's it's not technically wrong. Like, yes, this is a scientist who is also a woman. It's the fact that we make that distinction that Mm -hmm. feeds into all these ways that we're treating different demographics differently. Some often unconsciously. Right. So when you say scientist versus women scientists it's Mm -hmm. showing already that women is not the default and it's something different and so already you're you're putting you're like othering the the women so i actually this weekend was at the 100th anniversary opening for the florida museum of natural history where i work and uh i was running a booth called faces of the museum and so what we had done at an earlier event is we had made trading cards for people who worked at the museum and Uh visitors who were there could win the trading cards and you know try to collect them all because we have them now at every event but because i was in charge of making the trading cards i said 
let's do women who have been at the museum over the past hundred years. And so that's what we did. All the trading cards just so happened to be women in science. Now, if all mm-hmm. the trading cards had just been dudes, I don't think too many people would have really noticed like, oh, these yeah. are all dudes. It wouldn't have been dudes in science trading cards, right? It would have mm-hmm. just been like, right. oh, you know, that's, they were probably just dudes doing science. So now as women in science and a couple of people did ask, you know, over the weekend, like, oh, why aren't there any guys? And I was like, oh, no, 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 don't worry. Guys can be scientists, too. Yeah, there definitely have been guys scientists. <laughs> you know, gotta let your gender stop you. We support everyone here. There's uh, been a few notable was, ones. It was pretty funny to see some of the reactions, whereas, you know, all of a sudden, the all-women lineup really does strike a chord. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that that leads into this other phenomenon that can happen where... Even when you're, you know, when you have something like that, it's like, all right, these are all, all our whole, all of our cards are men or everyone that we've invited at this panel or something are, are men. And then looking at it and saying, well, we should have one woman. <laughs> and that's sort of even that well me. I, I really liked the term you used, othering, mm-hmm. where yeah. you have designated a certain demographic as the other demographic. The outlier. Yeah, so you and get that your token woman or your token person of color. And that leads into another issue that women in science or people of color in science have to deal with, which is only being called upon to be a part of a panel or to be a guest or something because they are talking about their experience as a woman or their experience as a person of color or any other minority. I'm here today because I love talking about this. I'm a women's studies major and... Mm-hmm. This this episode is to bring awareness to these issues. I love that. But if this was the only thing I ever got called to talk about, I would not be happy. Yeah. And I yeah. know that definitely has happened to other women where there's a time and a place to want to be talking about these issues. Like we have um, a program called She's a Scientist at the museum and it's for Girl Scouts. And they come and it's all the scientists that are women at the museum help lead this day camp for them. That's awesome. I want to talk mm-hmm. about my experiences as a woman, but I also am talking about my research to them because they want to learn about science. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes there's festivals where, again, happens to be all women. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. But we're still also talking about our research. And if, you know, if you're only getting called to be a guest or a speaker and that's what they want to hear about rather than what you've been sweating you know, for eight years over trying to get your PhD <laughs> and whatever it may be, and you're asked, yeah. what is it like to be a person of color and blah, blah, blah. That's a really tired, really old question that, you know, maybe they just don't want to talk about anymore. I can yeah. see how being a woman and just always being asked what it's like to be a woman would get kind of old. <laughs> yeah. And we should yep. we should point out that, you know, when we invite guests on the podcast... We've so far we've done it because of their expertise. Right? Yeah. We invited Sean because he's an expert preparator, and Ethan studies primates. And the reason that Michelle was invited is not primarily because she's a woman, but because she is. You know, this is women in paleontology, and she is a paleontologist who also studies women in science. Mm-hmm. Though it's probably also worth pointing out that she is the first woman that we invited to be a guest on the podcast. for the Women in Paleontology episode, which is perhaps revealing of some of our own unconscious bias as well. So listeners, keep an eye on these guys. (laughs) Keep (laughs) us in check. Let us know. We need to be inclusive as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> so there was one other study, actually, that I was debating whether or not to bring in, because to me it seems so obvious, but as you just mentioned, this is what I study, and so some of the things I've been staring at for three years are going to be brand new to other people. So let mm-hmm. me just throw this last one out there. This study sent out resumes of applicants to people, the same exact resume. One of them had a male-sounding name. One of them had a female-sounding name. Mm-hmm. Guess which one got more responses? Guess which one got higher <laughs> salary proposals? Yeah, I don't wanna. <laughs> you don't wanna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the answer's gonna be sad. <laughs> yeah, same exact yeah. application, and you still see that. And really, I don't know how you could get more clear cut than yeah. that. That's I'm glad you. That's what the bias is. I'm glad you brought that one up because that was we mentioned in the uh, in episode 17 that at this year's SVP meeting there was a women in paleontology luncheon. Yeah. And one of the presenters, Dr. Heather Metcalf, presented that study, uh, the results of that study. Oh cool. And for me it was a really impactful moment. I don't know why that particular study stood out for me, but that it's such a clear-cut difference. It's such a it's such an obvious mm-hmm. result. And what really struck me was that that bias of preferentially mm-hmm. giving treatment to male names over female names was present regardless of who it was reading the resumes. That yeah. this was something that men and women were equally doing to other women. And that this isn't, like Will was getting at before, it's not that, you know, a lot of times this this sort of discussion can come off like, you know, men are nefarious and look at all the terrible things yeah but it's a and you know sometimes that is absolutely true but in general it's a societal issue it is the the word that comes up a lot is systemic Mm -hmm. it's built Mm -hmm. in yes to the system yeah and i've heard uh, similar things with the resumes been done there's one i and it was you know video online so it must be true but um (laughs) it was uh big CEO, you know, or corporation managers or big, big time company bosses. And they were given like a few resumes, names blocked out and given a time to read them. And then just asked to be like, all right, what's your first impression? And, you know, uh, they were mostly from like college age or recent or near graduate age. And most of them were like, well, I, I probably wouldn't hire them or I probably wouldn't hire her. I, they need a little more experience. I don't like the wording that they used here. That makes them feel a little wishy-washy, blah, 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 blah. And then they yeah. would peel the names off and they had purposely gotten the resumes of like their friend's children or their niece <laughs> or their... I remember that. You know, people that they knew and it's oh, like you man. just writ- wrote off this person that you really care about. Purely just because of where they are in life, not because of who they are. And, you know, it's making that point that it's really easy to judge by a cover when you're looking at a piece of paper and going by your prejudgments. There's also been another one. I don't have the name of the study. So the one we just talked about where it was male versus female students, that's from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Mm -hmm. so like PNAS. Mm -hmm. And that one came out um, in 2012. So it's a little bit older, but... Clearly, the issue is still with us because I just brought two studies from the past few years. Um, (laughs) But there was another one that did the similar sort of thing. And it was a white sounding name versus an ethnic quote unquote sounding name, which I hate that term because ethnic means anything not white. And so that means white the default. (laughs) But that's a whole nother 
conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, but same it's thing like the happened use of there. The term urban. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Inner yeah. city. Yeah. Um, yes. Inner so, city. <laughs> you know, this this goes many ways. And we're specifically talking about women in paleontology because, again, I'm a women's studies major and that's what I focus on. But this is applicable to any minority and not just in STEM. This is something that is a systemic issue. So, you know, this yeah. this can be extrapolated to many things. Systemic. Ha! <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> So we've talked a bit now about sort of the, the, the place of women in science and in paleontology and, yeah. and what some of the unique challenges are. But moving to paleo specifically, do we want to share the stories of some specific women in paleontology? Yeah, I think that would be really fun. As I mentioned earlier, for listeners who don't know me, I specifically run a history podcast. I call it a feminist science history podcast because those are the three things we focus on (laughs) but if i had to pick just one descriptor it's a history podcast i like to talk about historical figures in stem and so when you guys first approached me with this my first thought was oh my god we got to talk about mary anding we got to talk about all these historical paleontologists that are so cool because when you ask someone to name like who are the founding people of paleontology? You got the classic white dudes like Richard Owen and blah, blah, blah. And so mm-hmm, let yeah. me present to you some other historical figures that have contributed to our field that you ought to yeah. know about. And I will also add that the issues we were just talking about, those are kind of modern issues, right? We were talking about how the era of overt sexism is over. Well, we're jumping right back into that. So hold <laughs> on to your off. butts, people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Let's start with probably the most famous historical female paleontologist, Mary Anning. Now, Mary Mm -hmm. Anning was born in 1799 and lived until 1847. So we're talking the 19th century here. And she was a British fossil collector and amateur slash avocational paleontologist. Now, the reason I say amateur slash avocational Amateur paleontologist, I think, is the term that most people use, but I come from a the fossil project at the Florida Museum of Natural History, and we've worked with a lot of non-paid paleontologists. And so these are people who maybe have a different job where they make most of their money and they don't get paid for doing their paleontology research, but these people know so much more about paleontology than I do. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> I... The term amateur to me evokes someone who is just kind of like fumbling around, not knowing what they're doing. These guys are legit. Uh, so avocational is the term that I like to use. And so yeah. let's talk about why Mary Anning was an avocational paleontologist rather than a paid paleontologist back in the old 19th century Britain. Yes. She was a very poor woman. She lived by the coast of Britain by some really fossiliferous cliffs and she and her father would collect fossils from the cliffs to sell to make money. So in the process of collecting these fossils, she not only collected them and was like, oh, this is a pretty cool snake tongue slash whatever tooth. She actually started (laughs) trying to understand what these fossils were, had some really great ideas about them. And a lot of her clients were ye old white dude scientists like George Cuvier and Richard Owen. And so she actually got into really good discussions with them, explaining what she thought they were, explaining what she understood about paleontology as a science. And so she was not only, you know, a person who sold fossils, but she was a colleague to these paleontologists. However, she was only a colleague in terms of the conversations they had because, as we discussed earlier, publishing 
is kind of the the ultimate goal for scientists whether that's right yeah. or wrong that's just how it is right now that's how it was back then and mm-hmm. so if you want to publish you need to have some money um if you want to be allowed into scientific lectures and present your thoughts you need to be part of a society and i don't have the exact stats right now but if i remember correctly from the episode that i did uh, which i'll talk about in a little bit mm-hmm. the price to be a member of one of the societies in Britain where she could present her work was more than the money that she made in a year. Wow. So she was not yeah. going to get in there. And we've been talking about uh, minorities in science and people who are at a disadvantage. And most of the time, of course, people think of women or, or um, ethnic minorities. But, you know, people who don't have a lot of money, that's another barrier. That's another barrier to entry in science that we should also yeah. think about people with disabilities mm-hmm. there there's a lot more people that we've got to open our eyes to and maybe think about when we're planning stuff but if, if you guys want to learn more about mary anning listeners or my lovely hosts that are here with me right now <laughs> the thumbs of stem did do an episode on mary anning featuring uh two yeah. awesome paleontologists megan and amy who run a blog called mary anning's revenge and so the reason they <laughs> called it mary anning's revenge is because even though, as we said, Mary Anning was uh, pretty smart, especially for being a poor, quote-unquote, uneducated woman, she didn't really get much credit for anything that she did. If you look at the casts or the fossils that she found, most of them don't have anything saying that Mary Anning was the person who found them and excavated and prepped and did all that work. And all of us being in the paleo world understand what it is like to have to collect fossils and the kind of skill that you need to prep fossils and the kind of skill you need to identify fossils. I know in my museum, yeah. the people who do all three of those things are, for the most part, separate people. And then you add on to that yeah. the people who study those fossils and interpret that. I mean, she was doing all of it. She was a pretty bright girl, but she didn't get credit for what she did until I think very recently. There are um, a couple of papers that have come out about her. I think her name is starting to get a little bit better known, but this is yeah. well over 100 years later. So Megan and Amy call themselves her revenge and blog in her honor. And uh, it's a really great blog, listeners. If you guys have not gone to Mary Anning's Revenge, you should go to now unless you're at work because it's definitely a not safe for work blog. Uh, It is very sarcastic. It is very sardonic. It is very up my alley type of humor. It's got all kinds of paleo news. It's got kind of irreverent musings on topics such as this about what is it like to be a woman in paleontology? I think they have a, a parody post where they write about what it's like to be a man in paleontology. Um, <laughs> so you should, you yeah. should definitely check them out. And if you just want to learn more about Mary Anning and hear that discussion, um, that you can find that episode on the Femme System website as well. Very cool. Yeah. I have listened to that episode, actually, and I would highly recommend it. The three of you together did a great job talking about <laughs> Mary Anning. For our listeners, of course, that episode is also a more mature discussion than we typically have on this podcast, so do be warned, but I would highly recommend it. Yeah, so let's move on to a different paleontologist. Let's talk about Marie Stopes. She was born about 40 years after Mary Anning passed away, so she was born in 1880, passed away in 1958. She was also a British woman. Um, She was an author, a paleobotanist, and a champion for women's rights. And so I'm sure you guys can understand why I thought she was an interesting person to talk about. So let's start by talking about her science work, because that's what's relevant to us on this Common Descent podcast. 
Um, so she provided a lot of contributions to plant paleontology in terms of the Carboniferous. That's the era that she worked in. She was the first female academic on the faculty of the University of Manchester. So she went to the University of College at London to study botany. Specifically, she was studying plants from the Carboniferous period, so the Mississippian, Pennsylvanian. And so specifically, she was studying coal. In mm -hmm. 1919, she published a paper coining four terms that our listeners may recognize because they are still for the most part in use today. So she coined the terms vitrian, which is the brilliant black and glossy kind of coal, durian, which is the hard and granular coal, clarion, which is the alternate, alternating light and dark layers, and then fusian, I hope I'm pronouncing these correctly, uh, <laughs> which is soft and crumbly. And so that's... Interesting. Yeah, that, that was her. That was a lady. They're still in use. If you ask anyone else, probably wouldn't know who came up with those terms, which <laughs> yeah. may, maybe that's not a sexy... I mean... I don't know who coined most of the terms that I'm using, but it's a fun, yeah, fun thing true. to note. She ended up getting her graduate degree in Germany. Uh, she went to go get her PhD in botany also. And when she got her PhD, she became the first woman in Germany to earn a PhD in botany. Cool. And then at the same time, because she was British, became the youngest person in Britain to hold a doctorate, which wow. at the time she was about wow. 24. And I'm also 24. I don't have a doctorate. But listeners, if you want to feel even worse about yourself, <laughs> before she even started her doctorate, when she was, I think, about 22, she had already published two papers um, on paleobotany. <laughs> I definitely had not done that at 22. So, you know, uh, if you've been looking for a sign that you need to get back to your writing, this is it. <laughs> I am I am not 22 nor 24, so that does not make me feel good on either. <laughs> Yeah, pretty oh. good for a woman, right? Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. for yeah. a girl. <laughs> that was all girl science. She, right, she right. publishes like a girl. Uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before she was 22, that's what publishing like a girl is. That's yeah, so publishing crazy. Publishing like a guy is waiting until you're like 50. So. I know, yeah, waiting until you, you can, you got tenure. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of paleontology, that's what she's remembered for. But if you Google Marie Stopes or most people that would recognize her name would recognize her because she, as I said earlier, was a champion for women's rights. Specifically, she was really interested in contraception and providing uh, birth control services for women. Mm. Now, I'll remind you that the time that she was doing this was the early 1900s. And this was not, I mean, right now it's still kind of taboo. So imagine yeah. this 100 years ago. Yeah. It was really not okay. She did get persecuted by the church and by the government from time to time for advocating for these things. Uh, she actually published both a newsletter, which I think was called Birth Control News, and a book called Married Love, which I think came out in like 1918 or so. So around the time she was still doing paleobotany. So she's doing her paleo research. She's doing her women's rights stuff. Like this girl's got her things going. Um, yeah. And in her books, she gave explicit advice for how to do birth control and really was the first person to bring this into like the public discourse, no longer being hush-hush about it, but saying hey, we need to talk about these issues. Yeah. And so that's super awesome. But yeah, if you guys put in, like, sound effects, this is when, like, the record scratch noise would come. Uh, <laughs> because <laughs> as cool as that is, this was not all roses. One of the reasons that she was uh, such a strong advocate for birth control was because she was also an equally strong advocate for eugenics. Uh, <laughs> 
yeah, that kind mm, of eugenics. Less, less good. This not is, so great. For sound effects, this is when the deflating balloon would come in. <laughs> yeah, or, or the wah, 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 wah. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So try to publish early, kids, but... Uh, stay away from to... the eugenics. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully one is not <laughs> a not symptom to... of the other. <laughs> is that yeah, what you're saying? Try, try not to be a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's yeah. Avoid general life rule. Yeah, she attended the inaugural congress of the Eugenics Society in 1912. She became a fellow of the society. She founded the Society for Constructive Birth Control and Racial Progress, which, if that doesn't tell you enough already. um, So this isn't just like allegations and people trying to like you know, ruin her name. Um, this this was legitimately what she was up to. And it wasn't like um, something that she just would get into if she had enough drinks in her. You know, it was, yeah. it was something she was... <laughs> that was her, that was her shtick. Yeah. <laughs> so, not as good. It, it's really interesting that you bring that up in talking about her because, and, and this kind of goes into some of the things we were talking about before, but it feels like usually when you have a list like this, these are women from history... It, it's kind of a best and the brightest list because the list is also, you know, it's usually a defensive. It's usually, look, these are women who are worthy of praise and who did great things. And you rarely hear about the negatives, which is different when, you know, if you talk about like Charles Darwin, people are very often will bring up, here's all the great stuff he did, but also here's how he was a little bit racist because he was a rich white guy from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of refreshing to hear accounts of women from history, not just as people of note or people who were worthy, but as people. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of goes into, um, we're talking about this new age of sexism, right? So one of the things that affects this new age of sexism is unconscious bias. But there's this other kind of sexism called benevolent sexism. And so benevolent sexism is sexism that on the surface sounds kind of nice. Like, let's only talk (laughs) about good women. Um, (laughs) But what that ends up doing is framing women as these pure, holy angels that can do no wrong. And so then when real normal people who are women make a mistake it's like oh my god i thought you were this pure perfect paradigm of goodness and how could you be doing this and so it sets up these unrealistic standards it just it's it's unrealistic it's not real and so when i'm talking about women in history i'm not talking about idealized women i'm just talking about women i'm just talking about people you know uh people are good people are bad people are both like you said at the beginning you know you're podcast is a history podcast and history should not you know shy away from one set of details or the other it's it's the history of that person you know just because yeah. they're they were a successful woman doesn't mean we should ignore the fact that she didn't think certain people should breed or whatever yeah. the case may yeah. be yeah and then benevolent sexism also ends up playing into these stereotypes that we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. saying women have motherly nurturing instincts and so they're trying to praise women by saying they're good but then if you're saying women have motherly nurturing instincts that means that they have to be mothers and so women who choose not to be mothers all of a sudden are wrong or keeps playing exact unwomanly what's wrong Mm -hmm. with you or women are more compassionate or women are there's just so many things it's it's playing into these stereotypes and so 
while on the surface, maybe it doesn't seem like the worst thing ever, it's still, it's still a form of sexism and it's still a form yeah. that can set bad things in motion. Yeah, you're still reinforcing this, like we were talking about with those studies early on, this unconscious framing of yeah. different groups of people as inevitably different. Yeah. And that even if it's in a good way, it's st you're still segregating in your mind what you expect and what you push upon different people. Yeah, even a, even a seemingly positive stereotype is still a caricature yeah. of that group or that person. You know, I mean, because it happens with individuals where, you know, a person in your group becomes known as the, you know, the this guy or the that, you know, whatever the <laughs> whatever the feature is, you know, it's the the guy who drinks or the the girl who is silly or the blah blah blah, the one who never get gets angry and at yeah. some point you're going to have a moment where it's like, well, like, it's not all I do, guys. You know, yes. And that happens yeah. with groups. Right, that's fine for a cartoon, but not for real people. Just, yeah. just like we were talking about earlier, when a paleontologist is only called upon to speak about her work as, or her experience as a woman in paleontology, she's like, wait, I'm also a researcher in paleontology, yeah. or a PhD in paleontology, or whatever it may be. I'm also an so. expert. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I also know a lot more I, about you, dude, than XYZ. So I, I happen to be a human. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. I would love to see that moment. It's like, would you like to talk about women? No, I, I can, I can tell you about shells, and I can tell you about <laughs> bivalves. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and that that actually is happening already. Um, I've heard that a lot from women that are just kind of like, yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know. So let's move on to another historical paleontologist. Yeah. Who's next? So if we're, let's, let's jump ahead a little bit in time. Well, actually, you know what? She was more or less a contemporary to Marie Stopes. We're talking about Tilly Edinger. She was born in 1897, passed away in 1967. And she was a German-American paleontologist who is probably most famous for being the founder of a new field of paleontology, paleoneurology. So she was actually trained in zoology, geology, and paleontology. And it was in her doctoral dissertation when she was studying the palate of a Mesozoic marine reptile that she encountered this skull with a natural brain cast. Cool. And that kind of sparked an interest in her, got the gears going in her head. And eventually, after she got her PhD, she worked at the Geological Paleontological Institute at the University of Frankfurt, and then in the Vertebrate Paleontology section of the uh, Sneckenberg Museum. And was able to continue her work, kind of looking into all these casts, until, if you heard the dates that I mentioned, you might realize that in the middle of her life, the Nazi party rose ah. to power. And so she was able to kind of get some work done, but after the events of Crystal Nog, she yeah. got out of there. And basically had to leave behind all of the work that she was doing her whole life. Um, she went to Br the British Museum of Natural History for a couple of years. But finally, eventually went to Massachusetts to work at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. And that's hmm. where she would do uh, most of her work for the rest of her life. And so once she was over there, she actually ended up being the, the first and only woman who attended the founding meeting of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. That's really cool. Uh, that who is. The listeners should now be familiar with after the whole exciting <laughs> episode yeah. uh, a couple episodes ago. And so that founding meeting was in 1940. And then in 1963, she actually ended up being elected as the president of SVP. Wow. 
And she continued her work in paleoneurology for the rest of her life, published a couple of really important books like The Evolution of the Horse Brain, and just basically did this thing, which I think is super cool and didn't even know about, that you can study <laughs> the brains, yeah. right, like the squishy parts of old dead things just based on their cast. I mean, come on, girl. She founded an entire yeah. field of paleo. That's really cool. Very cool. It's really interesting that you mentioned that she was, the, the at the founding meeting, she was the only woman who was there to compare to today. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about SVP in, in episode 17, a bunch that today there is, there, there's actually a diversity committee yeah, and SVP nowadays that yeah. are pushing for equal representation of different people. And you know, that this, this sort of sign of how different the times have become from what they were. Ju- and this was just, you know, less than a hundred years ago. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I would say, it's awesome to think that we have the diversity committee, but it's also not as awesome to think that we need a diversity yes, exactly. committee. This is right? true. We're moving forward, but we're not, you know, the yeah. we're not there. We're not yeah. there yet. Progress I is think, not the finish line. Yes, this is true. <laughs> I think it's really it's really interesting to to be going through these, you know, sort of you know, not role models but also just examples of women in paleontology and the fact that you don't hear a lot about these people, you know, like I have a degree in this, right? Will, you will, you have a degree in this as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't know much, you know, I've heard very little about a lot of these figures and it ties into something that came up a lot when I was talking to people at SVP about diversity in paleontology and in STEM, which is something that I've been talking to a lot of people about recently. And it's, you know, conversations just like this one, which has been a really eye-opening experience for me to yeah. to talk about this. It's like whenever you learn about any new thing, like like last episode, we talked about human evolution, and I started learning about it and going, wow, there's a lot here. <laughs> this was a very much the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and one theme that came up over and over again was this, this issue of representation, mm-hmm. that it's not just that we're recognizing women or minorities or whoever is being underrepresented. It's also that we're making them visible. Mm -hmm. And I spoke with a lot of paleontologists who said that they sort of grew up not sure if they could be a paleontologist because they hadn't seen paleontologists who looked like them. And it was, I haven't seen women paleontologists in the books and the movies and the documentaries I, none of them have tattoos. None of them are, you know, are, are whatever color skin <laughs> mine is or whatever back, racial background yeah. or ethnic background I have. And it really is important to have these people, you know, to show people, like, hey, look, there are women who do this. There are people in your demographic who do this, and you can do it too. Especially for kids, that's, that's a really yeah. big way in how they interact with the world is, hey, oh, that looks like me. You know, why yeah. not that be me? <laughs> you know, that's... Right. That's a big part. Yeah, we were talking about mm-hmm. unconscious bias and the stereotyping um, starting from an early age. So if you see a brown female paleontologist as a scientist role model, then maybe even if you're not interested in being a scientist, uh, you can relate to science yeah. in some way. And that makes you a little bit more connected yeah. to it. And and you might not realize how big of an impact that has. Yeah, it's not it's just a man's there. field you know, for men, it's 
a yeah. field for people. And I think for me, one of the most depressing thoughts is not just the impact it has on little kids to seed that preconception that, that this isn't a field that they can join, but even worse than that is the, that it seeds that thought in their parents. Yeah, yeah. That mom says, mm-hmm. well, I've never seen a female paleontologist, so I'm not going to encourage you to pursue that, or I'm going to push you to do something different. Yeah. And that, you know, unconscious bias comes from all directions. Yeah. That's really depressing. So we're talking about representation and like, why does this matter? And I think it's important to think about, and this is something that I talk a lot about in my podcast, is about why we don't hear about historical women scientists. Yeah. A lot of the times the the answers I get or the comments I get from people is that, well, there just weren't that many women doing science Mm -hmm. before the 20th century or before the 1950s or the 1980s or whatever period in time you want to pick. Or there weren't people of color because these people in this country didn't really do science. And so, my God, the kind of sexist and racist comments I've gotten are (laughs) ridiculous, which, again, people probably not thinking that they're being racist or sexist because just in their history classes, they never heard about it. So they assume these people or these genders didn't Mm -hmm. do science. Yeah, they they Um, think they're being factual. but They think they're being factual, right. But... Okay, so let's think about history. Let's think about who was writing history, who was recording history, and what was being deemed worthy Mm -hmm. of recording. If we're talking about the earth sciences and paleontology, well, let's consider geology didn't really start until like the 18th century, right? And the the word paleontology didn't actually, um, it's like first recorded in the early 19th century. And so this is a a relatively recent field, if we're talking about modern geology and paleontology. And so just in general... The people who could do this kind of work tended to be people who had money, right? Because mostly science was more of a hobby for wealthy people who had the time to like delve yeah. into these things. We talked about this a little bit with Mary Anning. The reason she was doing science was because she needed to find fossils to make a living. Yeah, she needed to sell seashells um, by the seashore. Yeah. She needed to sell seashells by the seashore, but she could, still couldn't get into like science because she couldn't afford to be part of these societies. She didn't have the time to take off from work and go to these lectures, um, etc. And so the only kind of people, men or women, that could really be scientists were wealthy. And then the only way that women could really get into science was to be assistants, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. And so I say quote unquote because a lot of these assistants were often um, wives or daughters or siblings of these uh, wealthy male scientists. And so what they did was help them with their science, not just by carrying the pickaxe or giving them bags, but really participating with their counterparts. And so because as a woman, you couldn't really be part of a society, you were allowed at lectures, but you weren't allowed to be part of a society. Uh, We're talking again about the 18th and 19th centuries. Well, the the person whose name was going to go on that paper was the the man. And so when you look back at history, whose name is there? <laughs> the man's name and the other names get lost to time. Charles Lyell, the yes. geologist, uh, he's one of our more famous founding fathers. Well, his wife, Mary Lyell, was one of the assistants who did the same amount of work. And so there are some notebooks and some some notes that you can look back at and see, you know, who was writing what. And can we tell who was actually coming up with the ideas and who was writing them down? No, a lot of these things are lost to us. 
uh, not just in geology, not just in earth sciences, but a lot of history. So when you're looking back at history and saying, well, I only see a man's mm -hmm. name, you know, writing in paleontology, uh, that's the only thing that was mm -hmm. recorded. And that's like one brief little glimpse that might not be the whole story. And so I think that's also really important to consider when you're talking about representation or what is the history of these fields. Something that I like to say a lot in my podcast, it's, I wouldn't say our tagline, but something we like to repeat is that women have always been a part of the past, but they haven't always been a part of history yeah. because history is a record yeah. that is chosen to be written down by yes. someone. Yeah. And at the time, women didn't matter. So why would you record mm -hmm. them doing yeah. these things? I love that sentence. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's such a great yeah. encapsulation of how, you know, you know, it's like when they say vic history is written by the victors. Yeah. Right. So, right. and, and, and yeah. it seems like history is the history of science is littered with examples of women who helped to come up with some really pinnacle ideas who didn't get the credit. Like, yeah. you know, famously oh in God. biology, right? Rosalind Franklin, who mm -hmm. was in the lab oh. with Watson and Crick discovering DNA, but didn't get her name put out there. Or yeah. Marie yeah, Tharp yeah, yeah. is another example who whose discoveries were a major part of introducing the now ubiquitous theory of plate tectonics that yeah. underlies all of geology. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, those are women who weren't on the papers or weren't yeah, in the like history books. I, I think a lot right. of people feel like when this gets mentioned that we're saying the guy's name should be erased and replaced, but it's, and it's not that where there should be a co-authorship. Yes. Right. Right. There's or even a, a single authorship. authorship. Yeah. Or either a, a first authorship. Cases. Which is really mm. poignant because today, if your name was left off of paper, you, you wouldn't ever work with that person again. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a huge deal. That's and, a and huge deal in the scientific big, community. Yeah, that can break entire relationships if, mm -hmm. if there's a not getting credit for the work you put into a study is is a huge affront. Because cool, that's the record of you being a scientist. <laughs> yeah, which is what we're talking and it about. Was the norm for women in science for a long time to yeah. not get that credit. Yeah. Yeah, so while we're talking about credit, should we talk about some cool modern projects yes, by paleontologists who we think would be relevant to Absolutely. this Absolutely. So what are some of the, the some great resources regarding modern women in paleo? What's going on nowadays? There are some really cool projects. Let's start with the Bearded Lady. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a U.S.-based documentary featuring women in various careers, various levels of various careers in paleontology. And I think, David, you've actually seen the uh, trailer recently. Do you want to kind of explain Sure, I did. Yeah, I watched the trailer as part of, you know, preparing for this episode, and I had heard about it and never really it, it delved into figuring out what it was about entirely. But based on the trailer, what they're, it, you know, it's a documentary, like you said, depicting women in paleontology and in very, you know, in the lab, in the field, all the different mm -hmm. places that a woman can be a paleontologist. The, the whole beard th theme there is this really poignant point that they make that the image you always see of paleontologists is this sort of rugged, messy gentleman out in the badlands or somewhere with this big, bushy paleontologist beard. Mm-hmm. And it fit, fills this stereotypical view of a paleontologist. And the point that the women in the documentary are making, or one of the points they're making, is 
women can be just as successful at field work, just as rugged, just as messy, just as down in the dirt, just as hands-on, all the same things that these men are doing, they just don't have a beard. And if you <laughs> slap the beard on, there is no distinction between what the women are doing and what the men are doing. And I love that, because that, that was a question that I would often get. I've shaved down now, but back when I had my big bushy beard mm-hmm. and was working at the museum, is you know guests all the time would go, so is a beard required to work here? Because they'd be looking at Sean <laughs> and Wally and me with who all yeah. had you know, a decent amount of facial hair. You know, and it's, it's, I mean, it's enough to be a dad joke. Yeah. And it's, (laughs) and it's a harmless little joke, but that harmless little joke is part of a greater stereotype of what people Mm -hmm. expect to see. Yeah. So another cool project, or actually a cool pair of projects that are specifically focused on the history of women in Mm -hmm. paleontology are Trailblazers, which is UK based and Daring to Dig. So trailblazers is not just paleontology, but women in all kinds of earth mm-hmm. science, people that might use a trail to dig <laughs> in the field. So archaeologists, yeah. paleontologists, earth scientists, geologists. That one's super cool. So their website, you should definitely check out because they feature historical figures, but also modern day women. And the coolest way that they do this is that part of their project, which I think is a traveling exhibit, but part of their project was to do a photo shoot. Hmm. And in the photo shoot, they wanted to recreate portraits of like Mary Anning and and Leakey and all these really cool historical figures. But they didn't just hire models. They hired actual women in those fields today to portray their four mothers, if you will, (laughs) from those fields. And they're just so cool. Uh, It's a really cool website. They've got, you know, just like couple paragraph descriptions of the woman's life that you can then look into later. And the same thing with the Daring to Dig project. That one is U.S. based, and so it's specifically United States women in earth science and paleontology. And that one's a traveling exhibit being created by the Paleontological Research Institute, so PRI. Mm -hmm. And that one's, I think, still a work in progress, Um, but you can go to their website and they have all the bios that they've created of the past and current women in paleo right now so that one's yeah. really cool. and the, awesome. we'll include links to all these in our standard blog post that when we publish up the episode we'll put you know you could follow the links yes, in, the little yes, descriptions yes, yes. in our blog post also and this needs to be said i think i need to say it huge huge props to whoever came up with the name travel blazers yes, yes. my goodness <laughs> i'm jealous <laughs> i am so jealous that's one of those things that i read and go i oh i wish that i wasn't as stupid as i am and didn't think of that first <laughs> oh that's so good yeah that was pretty solid <laughs> so if you want to learn a little bit more about like women in paleo also one of the resources that i've used a lot is this blog called letters from guanduana and that one's written by fernanda castro um and she writes about all kinds of paleo news and paleo stuff but she also has a, a pretty uh solid recurring series of blog posts that feature historical women in paleo cool. so if you want to learn more about marie stopes or People like the Nuam Courtois, which if you don't know who they are, I didn't either until she wrote about them. I don't know how she's finding all these ladies because part of my <laughs> job is to find historical women in STEM. Um, but she's got it down. So if you want some like good short blog posts to read about historical paleontologists, go check out her cool. blog. And then while I'm on the subject of blogs, once again, I'm going to promote my girls, <laughs> Megan and Amy from Mary Anning's Revenge. So funny. <laughs> so irreverent. So not safe for work. Do yourself a favor and check it out. It's hilarious. 
one of those women actually joined a super special secret project that we we <laughs> did uh, around SVP time, which we will talk about a little bit later. Oh, uh, so I got to meet Amy a, a as teaser. part of... Yes, a little teaser foreshadowing. There's a special thing coming up. Stay tuned <laughs> to the end of the episode super special. for the announcement of a super secret thing Which, that involves uh, Amy of Mary Anning's Revenge, at least in part. Taking pointers from the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> this is a trailer for the this end of the This is the teaser episode. for the trailer. <laughs> so then on a completely different note, something that's totally safe for work and your children is a upcoming <laughs> children's book called She Found Fossils. Uh, it's a kid's book about women in paleontology, and it was uh, created by Dr. Cool. Eugenia Gold. And it's going to be published both in English and Spanish, which is pretty cool. It was actually funded on Kickstarter, which is a really cool thing. Um, I think the funding period yeah. already closed, but you can go visit the oh. Kickstarter to see what it's all about, um, to learn where you can order the book eventually. And I was super excited to fund this project. I did it right away, and I will point out that she did on Twitter send out a call for modern women in paleo who might want to be featured in her book. So check it out because maybe some of your friends or colleagues might be featured there. Who knows? Very cool. That's excellent. Those are all great resources. And like I said, we'll put all those on the blog post. Yeah. This whole episode, you know, we've been talking about various facets of, of women's role in paleontology, and there's a whole lot more to, to, to talk about in this. But even this specific topic ties into the much larger subject of general diversity in paleontology and in mm-hmm. science in general. And I think it's really telling that we haven't been able to make it through any of our discussions so far here without also linking these issues to issues of people of color and people in, in other, you know, of, of people in poverty and other demographics that suffer from similar issues. And I, I think that this all ties into this discussion of what we can do to improve acknowledgement and representation for all people in a field of science and, and in any field and specifically in this episode in paleontology. So I, my, my next question, I guess, for our guest expert is where, you know, where do we go? What, what are the best ways for us to improve on the state of things where we are now? Yeah. So let's kind of bring it back to what are the issues, right? What are the things that we need to improve on? And one of the first things we talked about was unconscious bias, which affects Mm-hmm. everyone. And so the first step to defeating unconscious bias is admitting you have unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. And so there's this really great website. I can't remember the name of it. It's it's by university. There's a test. I think it's the implicit bias oh, it's test. Project Implicit. Project yes. Implicit. There you go. It's, it's a university-run website and it does exactly what it sounds like. It gives you this test where you go into it saying like, I'm not racist, I'm not sexist, I'm fine, this is fine. <laughs> and then you get it back and you're like, oh, sh- mm-hmm. that is <laughs> not quite what I expected to see. And fair yeah. warning, it's going to kind of hurt to do this one. That's the whole thing about unconscious bias, right? You don't realize quite all these things that you might be feeling inside. Is it your fault? Maybe yes, maybe no. This is part of the way that we've been conditioned. But at the same time, we're all adults here and it's time for us to, you know, acknowledge these biases that we have and do something about them. And so recognizing that these are issues 
kind of figuring out and and calling yourself out when these issues are happening is a really important step, right? Not leaving the burden of change on the underrepresented is so important because as we were talking about, women are so often asked, what is it like to be a woman in science? And what can you do to change? And blah, like, right. When we have to save all these experiences and write a research paper about it and publish (laughs) in multiple journals that, hey, guess what? There's still sexism and we're still dealing with it. Can anyone help us out? (laughs) Hello? Hello? Like, you know, that's tiring. (laughs) And so we need other people to step up to the plate and help us. Um, You know, if you're a person who has privilege or power by any means, I mean, I'm a queer Latinx woman of color scientist, right? And so that puts me at a disadvantage. But at the same time, I have financial stability to the point where I have a roof over my head every night and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I can walk on my own two feet. And so I have privileges of my own and I'm going to use those to help the people who don't. And so this is not just saying like, if you're a white male, although if you are guys, I'm really talking to you when need you to step up to the plate (laughs) but you know everyone has a way in which they can help someone else and so recognize your bias and then act against your bias and act on the privilege that you have and so i kind of wanted to turn this back on you guys because you've been asking me right as a queer latinx woman of color what can you tell us about women in science and, and what can we do so what from what we've talked about, right? Um, we've been kind of preparing this episode for, I'd say, about a month now, talking back and forth, floating ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you say that you could do to improve these issues? I I liked I liked both those points because I think those are things that so often get ignored. Like no one likes to admit that they have a, a flaw they don't like. You know, like it's yes. fine to be like, oh, I stay up too late. You know, that's <laughs> a flaw, but it's not one that's dislikable. It's hard to be like. Okay, yeah, I can be a little sexist sometimes when it comes to these <laughs> attributes. Like that's not a fun thing to yeah. bring up in conversation, but it's you know, and I was glad that you admitted that. It's like regardless of who takes that test, probably going to be a little surprised at the results. You know, it's yep. I've like it. saying I don't have an ego. It's you, you probably do. <laughs> if you have to say that. Uh. Yeah, and that's Look, I think but that if really you're is fabulous, is... and you know you're fabulous. That's... Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> like me, I'm fabulous, and I know it. You're fabulous. Can but confirm. I think that is a Michelle's, part of Michelle it. is fabulous. Yes, <laughs> it's just that that being trying to take that first step to just just acknowledge, just just acknowledging that there that there is a difference for those people who are not the majority of whatever the field or the setting is. You know, in paleontology, women are one of the minorities, so it is different. You know, it's not yeah. it, 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 that's not just something that happened by random chance. And I think for me, you know, and I mentioned that, you know, we've been working on this with Michelle and and I was talking to a bunch of people about this at SVP. One of the things that I, I have found to be really, really important because, you know, like, like Will saying, it's not comfortable to talk about these things, mm-hmm. especially if you are the, if you're part of the problem. And in this case, we're all part of the problem. Yeah. Some of us more than others, whether we mean to be or not. <laughs> and I think that it's so important just to talk about it, and more importantly, to listen. Yes. The conversations that I have had just coming out of, you know, asking a question or two over the past couple months have been really telling for me. And even, you know, even little things like when we, we were coming up with... So uh, we're going to talk about this special, super special diversity and paleontology project thing here in a little bit, but it involved asking people questions about, 
diversity in paleontology. Yeah. And we turned to Michelle and we said, hey, Michelle, what, what are the, what are some good questions? And Michelle said, I'll tell you what's not a good question. And what's <laughs> not a good question is what's it like to be a woman in paleontology? For all the reasons that you've already explained that it's, it's this focusing, you know, you're a woman, talk about being a woman instead of talking about yeah, tell us about other the issues. Issue. And it was, you said that and I, and I went, huh, well, there goes my first thought. <laughs> erase, 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 erase. Because I wouldn't erase. even have thought about that. I wouldn't even have considered that that was somehow an issue, a, a question that is overdone because I'm looking at this from the perspective of a person who's never really looked at it. And, you know, to listen and to hear people. And I had this moment not too long ago, you know, in talking about these sorts of things where, you know, you hear about these, you know, what what might be written off as complaints from I experienced sexism in the workplace or I was not chosen for this job because I, I feel like I'm being discriminated against for, because of my gender or because of, of other reasons. And from the outside, it's kind of easy to say, well, you know, there's other explanations and there's other reasons. But like Michelle said, when you hear it over and over again, if you're listening, you know, and I had a moment not too long ago where I looked back and went, the people I'm hearing this from are not unreliable, silly people. Like these are intelligent, self-aware human beings. And if I listen to what they're saying, like, of course I would listen to them. Just like I would listen to them saying anything else, why would I write that off as being not a big deal unless I'm doing it because I'm acting on yes. unconscious yeah. bias of my own? And that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah and it is. It's 100%. I, w- I was at SVP, and I, I sat down at the, the student roundtable, had a table this year for women in paleontology, and I sat there. I sat down next to Ashley Moorhart, who's one on the diversity committee. And I was on a table that was at, when I sat down entirely populated by women. And I was the only man there sitting there going, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. You don't need and to say I anything. Am... You guys always get to talk. It's your time to listen. <laughs> yes. That yeah. is a very good point. Yeah. And step out of your comfort zone and talk to people and listen to what they have to say is, is such an important way to, to change your perspective. Well, that that lack of reference is a big part of it. You know, I'm, for a lot of people, I saw a really, really great newspaper comic the other day. It may have been on Facebook. It may have been on the bulletin board at work. I don't remember. But it was mm-hmm. two bald eagles talking to each other. So probably some political underlying there. But that's not what I'm reading <laughs> into. Uh, two bald eagles talking. And one of them went looked up to the other and goes, Hey, do you think Mr. Owl is dangerous? And the other one goes... No, I've never felt threatened by Mr. Allen. He goes, okay, yeah, me neither. And he goes, huh, that, you know, why do you ask? And he goes, oh, I mean, just, it was a conversation I was having earlier, but, you know, I, I don't know what Mr. Mouse is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of that, it's, oh. it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to actually understand what, what's going on with, you know, women or whatever other demographic within science or another field when you aren't that demographic you know so it's it's hard to put yourself in the shoes unless you're actively try to you're not just going to default to that mindset if that's not what you're experiencing you're going to default to your experience and the only way you're going to get there is by listening talking and paying attention you know what you're saying earlier about you just kind of you know doing a, a check on yourself looking at yourself and kind of or looking at things you know even just a movie you watch and going huh why did the 
female character need to be wearing tight pants in that scene? <laughs> or know? no pants. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, why was yes. that necessary? Or None of the guys are wearing the, that. All the protagonists just white male dudes, you know? It's, it's, once you start like looking, it's like, oh, damn, it's everywhere. And it's, it's, so we, it's we've little, been saying, little like, steps toward big yeah. things. So we've been saying, look at yourself, recognize, pay attention, but let's move it one step further and also say that action is necessary, right? Like the first mm-hmm. step, recognize yeah. and listen, but action. So what kind of action can people take? There's this really great pledge that I've seen, and I'll find it and share it with you guys, that is a pledge that says, I will not agree to be on panels, for example, that are just all male, and I would take it a step further and say all white males, um, yeah. for conferences, mm-hmm. and we were talking about reviewers, um, we could be thinking about seminar series, and, you know, if, if we have listeners like myself, I'm a grad student, I'm for the most part not going on panels, but I listen to panels, and so if I see a panel that is all white dudes, I might think about contacting whoever organized the panel, the organization, or the conference, and say, hey... I definitely know that there's women in paleontology that are just as qualified as these guys. But then there's also this issue that we were talking about earlier, which is the burden of of change falling on the minorities, right? Because we're yeah. the ones who see it. Yes. We're the ones that want to change it. But let's think about women, for example. We're talking about stereotypes. There's the stereotypes of women as being emotional and whiny and unstable and so if it's only one woman in the department going up to the chair who maybe is not so into looking at these issues and that woman starts getting ostracized and they start seeing her as whiny or you know doesn't work well with the team or whatever that's a big problem whereas we're talking earlier about privilege and what can you do with what you've been given well if if you guys were the ones who went up to that panel, if it's more than one person, and if it's people who already have a platform from which to talk, that can make a lot mm-hmm. of difference. And so that's that's one of the things that I would challenge you and your listeners to think about, right? We were talking about recognize your bias and, and try to see these issues when they come up, but then also do something about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not easy. Mm-mm. And we know that, you know, that's asking a lot of ourselves and of, of other people that that we're recommending this to. And, it, you know, I mentioned earlier the Women in Paleo luncheon at SVP, which was recorded, and so you can find it online, and we'll put a link to that in the blog post, too, in, in case people want to see the the speakers. But there was a, an audience member who came up at the end of that and shared her experience trying to do exactly what Michelle is just describing, of, of noticing that there was a panel, and it was all dudes, and she went up to the people in charge and said, hey, this is... Maybe there are women you could have invited, or why didn't you, right? Making people aware of their own biases. The people that didn't listen to this discussion or that don't listen to Michelle's podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Making them aware, and, you know, if I remember her, you know, I don't want to mischaracterize her experience, so you can go look at it yourself, but, you know, essentially it didn't go very well, right? People are not always open to hearing this, and it can be a challenge, but that's no reason not to add your voice because, mm-hmm. right, power in numbers. We yeah. add more voices, especially, like Michelle was saying, we're in a society where, unfortunately, a person who is not part of a minority demographic is more likely to be listened to in a lot of cases. So use that to your advantage if you have that. Yeah, it's and it, like you said, it's it's definitely, it's not not always an easy thing to to do mostly just because it can be very awkward. Yeah. But that 
it's not saying it's not awkward for the women that are trying to do it. <laughs> ah, yes. I was trying to figure like, out how to, how to insert exactly. that. But you it got is, it. You got it. It is awkward, yeah. period. We, you know, and the people who are not being affected typically by the issue directly are just not driven to by personal experience because we're not being tamped down or ignored or given a difficult time to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it takes an extra little step to get past that awkwardness and take the awareness to go, yeah, you know what, I, I agree, and I'm not just going to tell you that I agree with you, I'm going to tell someone else that I agree with you. you know? Yes. It's it's an extra step, but yeah, it's a, it's a socially awkward one, but it's a socially awkward for everyone, so it still needs to be taken. Absolutely. So on that note, should we transition to the super secret, super special yes. extra bonus episode that extra we've mentioned? Extra bonus Yes, so in on top. prepare. Here's you know how I was saying that you if you talk about it and you listen and you have discussions, wonderful things happen. Well, when we reached out to Michelle originally, the whole the only thing that we planned was hey come on our podcast and talk about women in paleontology because it was a request by one of our listeners. But Michelle came up with this incredible suggestion because I was going to be at SVP to see if we can get some little mini interviews with some people mm-hmm. around SVP. And originally, Michelle, you suggested it as getting sound bites. Like maybe mm-hmm. if I get a couple of people to make little sound bites that we can squeeze into the episode. But I didn't get a couple of people. I got 16. <laughs> <laughs> because turns out people want to talk about this. Weird. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so we are going to be releasing, along with this episode, a compilation of 16 different paleontologists that I spoke to at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, women, men, older paleontologists, younger paleontologists, all different backgrounds, sharing their thoughts on the, the this question of diversity in paleontology, where we're at, what we need to do, why it's important. And I would, we're going to, like I said, we'll put it out alongside this episode. I would highly recommend listening to it because talking to these people and I, I hope that I'm not saying this so much that I that I'm oversaturating this this impression <laughs> that I'm trying to get overhyping it. I've been going to SVP for eight or nine years, and talking to these people about this issue was probably the most personally impactful thing experience that I have had at SVP. It was so wonderful and so touching to hear these different people express their personal experiences and their personal viewpoints and their their hopes and dreams in a, in a lot of cases for what the field that they love should and hopefully will continue to, to aim towards being. Yeah, they, and I'd like to awesome. add that um, we talked about tokenization and being that, you know, the token woman talking about blah, blah, blah. And I'd really like to make clear that the opinions that I've presented today, the the issues that I'm talking about, these are from my point of view. This is what Mm -hmm. I feel. I'm trying to incorporate Mm -hmm. things I've heard from my colleagues and my friends, but making this very clear, this is Michelle Barbosa Ramirez's take on these issues that are going on. And so that's one of the really big reasons that I suggested we talk to other people because this doesn't just affect me. I'm not the representative of women in paleo. I'm not the representative of the LGBTQ community. I'm not the representative of the people of color. I'm I'm just a perspective. And so let's hear yeah. everyone else's perspectives. You're not the only voice and no one person is. Mm-hmm. There's 
plenty of voices and they all have slightly different stories and takes on it. And the more you listen to, the bigger picture you get. Yeah. Yeah. And we have spent lots of time in this episode recommending things. We've recommended blogs and we've recommended actions and we've recommended listening to this this other compilation. Yeah, yeah, other the, people's our voices. Super our, secret, yeah, super special. I would like to reiterate that we would highly recommend if you are interested in any any portion of, of this episode that you check out the the podcast of a good friend of ours, Michelle. Yeah. <gasps> Michelle can, would you like to tell the listeners where they can find you? Sure. So if you guys want to hear more about the history of STEM, um, specifically the untold histories of a lot of really cool <laughs> scientists who, oh my gosh, happen to be women and especially women of color, uh, you should definitely check out the Thems of STEM podcast. You can find us at themsofstem.com. That's F-E-M-M-E-S-O-F-S-T-E-M. Dot com. I also have social media accounts for the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Thumbs of STEM. And if you just want to specifically hear my ramblings, which is a mixture of interest in science communication, diversity in STEM, and museum life, um, which is what I'm all about, then you can follow me at Latinx Scientist at Twitter. So that's L-I-T-I-N-X Scientist. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Michelle M. Barbosa. That's Barbosa with a Z. Um, and I'm sure my good friends will put all of those links online for you guys because you probably yes, yes, forgot the yes. first one already. <laughs> <laughs> that will all be on the blog. It will put it on our, our social media as well. Like we say at the end of every episode, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, all different places. We, we take comments, we take questions, yeah. we take suggestions for other episode topics. Speaking of which, and, this episode yes. was based on a suggestion, and I would like to make a shout out to that listener who suggested it, because you got me on the show. <laughs> yes, that was Matthew on Facebook. Thanks, Matt. Also, if you're not already Thanks, a patron of this episode, you should, because we're about to record a super secret, super special after talk episode only available <laughs> to Patreon subscribers, which means that I have to subscribe now too because I want to hear our rambling. What this else? is so unexpected. I never even thought about that. <laughs> That's true, actually. Uh, our patrons get access to bonus audio content. Yeah. None of the educational, all the educational stuff is free, but we record after chat, which is usually just me and Will nonsensing for an extra 10-15 minutes but this time we're going to be joined by Michelle so a third person's special. worth of nonsensing and I don't have to censor myself in this one guys <laughs> <laughs> Michelle's been trying very hard this whole episode she's been doing very well this whole episode <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you mostly the editing, yeah. <laughs> the editing does, <laughs> does a very good job like I said we take comments we take questions we take suggestions for episode topics this time I will add that in addition if you have follow up questions in addition to contacting us at the Common Descent podcast, you should consider contacting Michelle yeah, on, mm -hmm. on social media, uh, at her website with her podcast, because I'm sure she would love to take your questions about this topic. Yeah, let's keep this conversation going, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And so as we wrap up, big thanks to all of our listeners for listening to this episode. Big thanks again to Matthew for making this suggestion and for inspiring yeah. what has been, I think, and I hope, a fantastic conversation. I've enjoyed it. And a huge thanks, wherever you are out there in the world, applause, 
for our guest, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. De nada, de nada. It was awesome. And gracias for inviting me on. <laughs> yeah. And if our li listeners, if you really liked it, if you liked hearing uh, this conversation, you want to hear more about it, let us know. Uh, maybe we'll bring Michelle back, or maybe we'll bring on somebody else. Who knows? We'll continue the conversation. Absolutely. Wonderful. As is always the case, we release new episodes every fortnight, uh, usually one at a time, usually normal length. <laughs> we'll see. But next time, two weeks from now, we will release another episode. Eventually, we'll release a, a normal length one again. <laughs> Eventually, we'll take a break. What is normal? What is length? Know, That's the theme of this episode. <laughs> That's true. There's no other episode. Yeah, episodes. who decided yes. episodes needed to be an hour? Question the system. <laughs> It's a conspiracy. Dear listeners, keep listening, keep learning, be proactive, check yourselves, check each Before other. Before you wreck yourselves. Yes. yes. And please join us next time on the Common Descent Podcast. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.